I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 11, we've been taking a few weeks to look at this fantastic miracle of our Lord Jesus Christ when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And this morning we come to the end of that account. We're going to begin reading in verse 45, just after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead and called upon him to walk out of his tomb. We'll pick up the reading in verse 45 and read to the end of the chapter. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. If you're a sports fan at all or you know anything about sports, who would you say is the most polarizing, most divisive athlete in our country today? Alex Rodriguez? Tiger Woods? Barry Bonds? Lance Armstrong? Well, it's amazing that even still on the lists of most divisive or most polarizing athletes, still the number one name on the list, even after he's been off the, uh, the, the radar and been out of the public square for probably a year or so, is Tim Tebow. And I'm always fascinated by how our culture has reacted to him. He, of course, former quarterback for the Denver Broncos, NFL football player. By all accounts, Tim Tebow is a great person. He's a very nice guy, works hard, he's a good leader in the clubhouse. He's a man of integrity. So why do so many Americans despise him? And I think as we look into that and we try to discern that, I think we get an insight into the relationship with Christians and our culture in general. Some try to say that the reason that people hate Tim Tebow so much is because his success and notoriety are disproportional to his abilities. 
But I don't think that's really it. I think that's just why people like to comfort themselves with that kind of a thought. I think most people admit that the reason that he's so despised is that he's so bold in public about his faith in Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, many people would admit that he's even not that obnoxious about it. I was impressed with his answer one day when he was asked about this, why people have such a negative reaction to him and and uh, asking, the reporter was asking him, do you think that you're really too in the face of people with your, your Christianity? And this is how he responded. He said, if you're married and you have a wife and you really love your wife, is it good enough to only tell your wife that you love her on the day that you get married? Or should you tell her every single day when you wake up and every opportunity that you get? That's how I feel about my relationship with Jesus Christ. And I like that answer because he's basically saying, listen, Jesus Christ is the most important person in my life. He's risen. He's with me every day. He is the first priority of my life. And if I love him like that, then everybody around me is going to hear about him. They're going to know that I have that relationship in my life. Well, as I said, our culture's reaction to Tim Tebow and his bold public professions of faith is very similar to the way that the culture around us responds to the church. It's just a reflection of that spiritual battle that's been going on ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. Jesus said in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. That it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, I ch- but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That is a fact of life that Christians have to accept and embrace as we live in a fallen world. This divisive effect of Jesus Christ himself is really one of the major themes of John's gospel. Back in the chapter 1, he said, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Chapter 3, he says, The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light. This division, this conflict between light and darkness is one of those metaphors that John keeps coming back to over and over again. And here, as we come to the end of chapter 11, as we come to the climax of this fantastic story about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, that's where the focus comes down, is on the division that Christ and even this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, the division that it brought about among people. Did you notice as we left off the reading at last week's passage, this is just as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, he calls him out of the tomb, and we get this glimpse, very brief glimpse, of Lazarus walking out of the tomb, still wrapped in his grave clothes. And then immediately, very abruptly, John changes the focus of the story to the impact and the reaction that people had. And I I don't know about you, but that kind of frustrates my curiosity, because I want to linger a little longer on Lazarus there. I want to I want to hear Lazarus' reaction to being raised from the dead after being in the tomb for four days. I'd love to know what he thought. I'd love to know what he experienced during those four days. 
I would love to know what Mary and Martha's reaction were to receiving their brother back. I don't know if you've seen any of the commercials recently for the, there's a new television show, I know nothing about the show, but there's a new show called Resurrection coming on. And they, they, all you see in the commercials are about people being reunited with people who they had died years before and they're suddenly raised from the dead. I have no idea what it's about, but the, the commercials are actually very emotionally moving because you can imagine what it'd be like to have a loved one restored to life. And we don't get any of that. John's not even interested in that. Not that he wasn't interested, but that's not his agenda. Remember, we know what John's agenda is and everything he writes in this gospel. He tells us at the end, chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe. And so it's about faith response to Jesus Christ. And that's why John immediately and abruptly changes the focus of his story to how the people reacted to the resurrection of Lazarus. And you'll see there in verse 45, it says, many of the witnesses believed in Jesus. But some of them ran off to tattle to his enemies. They go to the Pharisees, to the Jewish leadership that had already proven themselves over and over again to be hostile to Jesus Christ. And so the rest of the chapter focuses on the reaction of the Jewish leadership. And in that reaction, we see the anatomy of unbelief. We get a clear picture of what rejection of Jesus Christ, what unbelief looks like. In verse 47, it says that the leaders came together and they formed an official council meeting. An official meeting of what was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the governing body made up of the Jewish leadership that oversaw the Jews in Judea. It was made up of 70 leaders, give or take one or two, made up of high priests, priests, scribes, elders, both Pharisees and Sadducees, you know those two parties, made up the Sanhedrin. This was the highest governing body over the people of Israel, the Jews, but it was under the Roman Empire. And they were allowed to rule locally only insofar as they didn't contradict or conflict or, or in any way impinge upon the authority and the actions of the Roman Empire. It's interesting, we don't think of this as being part of the trial of Jesus, but, and we don't know a lot of details about how the judicial process worked in the first century Jewish uh, culture in the, in the government. But there's a very good chance that this actually was the first stage of the trial against Jesus. It's in many ways, even though Jesus wasn't present at this point, in many ways it's like a preliminary hearing. And so they officially come together as a Sanhedrin, and there we begin to see their unbelief on display. And the first characteristic of unbelief is their blinded eyes. Their blinded eyes, their inability to see what was obvious. Listen to the first speech on the floor of the Sanhedrin, verse 47. Someone rises to the, to the, to the podium or rises to the mic or whatever. They come to the, onto the floor and this is what they say. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. That's actually a remarkable statement. Very first thing that they say is that this man, Jesus Christ, is performing many amazing signs. You would think they could 
just end the whole process there. They're acknowledging that Jesus Christ is doing miracles. That he was restoring sight to the blind. That he was causing the lame to walk. That he was feeding thousands miraculously. That he was causing the dead to be raised to life again. They're acknowledging it. They don't dispute the facts. But you understand what he's really saying. Whoever this is is speaking. What he's saying is, this man has to be stopped before he heals again. How could they be so blind? How could they not see the obvious significance of the signs? Well, it's easy for us to be judgmental. It's easy for us to look at that, read this account, and say, well, I would have never done that. Oh, really? There but for the grace of God go any of us. Every one of us is capable of being that blind. Matter of fact, we are born into the world that blind to the obvious displays of the glory of God around us. Every day, human beings wake up and spend their entire waking hours surrounded by abundant evidence of the glory of God. And yet, they end every day denying him or ignoring him. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The evidence of the glory of God around us should be obvious. But because we were born spiritually deaf, spiritually dumb, spiritually dead, we are unable to perceive it. It's amazing. The, the, you would think with the great technology, the accumulation of, of data and intelligence that we have over recent generations, that we would become more and more amazed by the revelation of God in what he has made. We are able to see much farther and much deeper in to God's creation than any generation has ever been able to see the glory of God in his creation. And yet, hearts seem to become harder instead of softer. They tend to become more adamant in their denial of what is revealed about the glory of God. When scientists first discovered DNA in our cells, they celebrated it as proof of evolution, of mindless evolution that happened by random chance. They said, hey, we found it. Here's the mechanism by which information is transferred from, from one generation to another, to how information is passed on to offspring. How could they not see what's so obvious? 
I mean, I'm no scientist, and when scientists talk about this, they always have to dumb it down to my level so I can understand it. But this is helpful to me. Some, one scientist said that if you were to take the amount of DNA that you could fit on the head of a pin, in that amount of DNA, there is enough intelligent, complex information to fill enough books to stack up all the way from here to the moon 500 times. That's how much information is in the DNA that can fit on the head of a pin. Now that's impressive. That's enough for me. But it's more than that. And not only is there that much complex, intelligent information in the DNA, but also it has, as they put it, its own proofreader and spell checker so that when it's copied, that it's copied accurately. And every cell is able to quickly access and copy and translate the information in that DNA much faster than any computer that we could ever dream of and do it precisely. And that ability to process the information in the DNA is a mechanism that is also created that has to be in place with the information for the DNA to do what it does. So in other words, it's like the old mousetrap illustration. You have to have both things. For mindless, random chance evolution to have brought this about, the mechanism to interpret the information and the information, the complex, detailed, intelligent information itself would all have to develop at precisely the right time so that it could do what it does. But listen to how Thomas Watson, who was one of the two men who discovered the structure of DNA, listened to how he reacted to the discovery. This is what he said. Every time you understand something, religion becomes less likely. Only with the discovery of the double helix of DNA and the ensuing genetic revolution have we had grounds for thinking that the powers held traditionally to be the exclusive property of the gods might one day be ours. What an audacious statement in light of the evidence of God's glory. Or hear this from biologist Martin Egley. He says, listen to this, DNA's simple and elegant structure seems to be the work of an accomplished sculptor. Yet, the graceful, sinuous profile of the DNA double helix is the result of random chemical reactions in a simmering primordial stew. Just how nature arrived at this molecule molecule and its sister molecule, RNA, remains one of the greatest and potentially unsolvable scientific mysteries. The glory of God is all around us. It should be obvious enough to put us on our knees, saying, God, who are you? Reveal yourself to me. And yet we want to say that our discovery of his glory makes us gods. There is no visible evidence that will convince those who are spiritually blind and deaf and dead to believe in Jesus Christ and to give glory to God. Understand that. There is no visible evidence that has the power to persuade those who are spiritually dead. And there, but for the grace of God, go you and I. Jesus told us a story to illustrate this point. Interestingly, it's a story about a man named Lazarus. 
And this Lazarus died too. And this Lazarus went to heaven. At the same time, there was a rich man who died, and he went to hell. And as he suffered under God's wrath in hell, the rich man begged to have Lazarus sent back from the dead to warn his family so that they could repent and not end up under God's wrath in hell too. Do you remember what he heard in response to that plea? If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If you don't have ears to hear the word of God, by God's grace, you won't believe even if someone were to rise from the dead. You want a further illustration of this? Do you remember what these same Pharisees and Sadducees, these priests and scribes and lawyers, you remember what they did after Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by his own power and conquered sin and death? Do you remember how they responded? They went and bribed the guards so they would lie about the disciples stealing the body. That is our nature apart from grace. To deny the obvious. The second characteristic of unbelief is what we see in verse 48, which is the entangled soul. Again, on the floor of the Sanhedrin, it is said, if we let him go on like this, doing these miracles, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You get a peek into their hearts there, don't you? You see what's motivating this incredible, persistent rejection of Christ. Now, I will grant to them that their fears are well-founded because first-century Jerusalem, first-century Judea in general, was a political powder keg. There had been numerous uprising among the zealots who were like terrorists trying to overthrow and, up, uh, and upset the, the rule of the Romans and drive them out of Judea. There had been many false messiahs who had come forward pretending to lead God's people to drive out the Romans by military force. And so their fears were well-founded. That the, and the Romans, they had, a, they, had a, they had a quick trigger finger when it came to suppressing these things. They would not put up with these kinds of uprisings. But understand that these leaders in the Sanhedrin, their response to the ministry of Jesus Christ was not a, was not a thoughtful Biblical, spiritual, theological response to his teachings and his claims. It was a pragmatic, political response of self-protection. They saw the Jesus movement in Israel as a threat. A threat, as they put it, to their place and to their nation. You see, these men were driven by a fear of losing position and power and prestige and prosperity in this world. That's in spite of the fact that they were really only puppets of the Roman Empire. It's interesting, later in the trial of Jesus, the Sanhedrin would hand Jesus over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, so that Jesus could be sentenced to death. And it says that Pilate first tried to release Jesus, made 
couple of different attempts to try to release him. Why? Matthew 27, 18 says, because he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. It was out of envy. He saw that motive in their hearts, that desire to cling to their earthly power and prestige and prosperity. But interestingly, even Pilate ends up handing Jesus over to be crucified. When? When his power and prestige and prosperity was threatened. He handed Jesus over too. You see, this is the kind of division that Jesus promised is good, was going to happen in his day, after his day, and in our own day. Over in Matthew chapter 10, listen to what he says. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Listen to this. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, that's the division that we all have to someday face up to. Do you want to save your life in this world, your power, your prestige, your position? Are you willing to give that up for Jesus Christ, trusting that he has something far better and far more eternal to offer to you? As culture here in America becomes more hostile to Christ and to the gospel, we are going to have to more and more face the fear of giving up our lives, giving up our prestige, our position, our possessions, our prosperity. We have to be willing to face that fear more and more. I think as I study world history and particularly church history, you begin to see that there's a cycle of persecution that goes on all the time. Same cycle, same features. It's been going on all through history and it's going on even today and not different, to different degrees in different parts of the world. And we're in the stage of persecution that I would call privatization. That's where your culture, your, the governing power, the powers that be, they'll say to you, okay, you are a follower of Christ. You proclaim Christ to be Lord. We will allow you to believe that, to practice it, to talk about it on the reservation, in private, out of the public square. You have all kinds of freedom as long as you keep it out of the public square. And then the church initially, understandably, accepts that. And then eventually compromise happens. Those who do become bold enough to live for Christ and speak of Christ and talk about him like that kind of loving relationship like Tim Tebow talks about in the public square, they get, first of all, ridiculed. Secondly, silenced. Finally, eliminated. That's the way the cycle works. And those that are on the reservation, those that are keeping their faith private, they end up choosing to either repent of that or they compromise. I just saw a poll yesterday. It was a, it was a survey that was done by the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, which is the PCUSA, which is the mainline we would call liberal Presbyterian denomination, not this one, not ours. 
In that denomination, they asked the pastors, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation? 41% said yes. 41% is actually higher than I thought it might be. This is the church going off the reservation into the culture, compromising and becoming part of a dark, spiritually blind culture. But there's a final stage of the anatomy of unbelief, and we see it in this passage as the hardened heart of Caiaphas. Look at Look at where Caiaphas stands up and he speaks and listen to what he says. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. This is the final stage. This is a heart that has become so hard that in order to keep your life, to protect your life in this world, you're willing to kill God. We think we would never become that dark, never become that hard. But that is the logical progression of spiritual blindness and spiritual deafness and spiritual deadness is that when your heart becomes completely hard, you're willing to raise your fist at God and even strike at God in order to have your way. Every one of us is born with that nature that's hostile to God. And if God didn't restrain the wickedness within us, this, the blind and entangled souls that we have, we would get more and more hardened in our sin and rebellion to the point where we would not only reject God, but we would destroy him if we could. John points out that God is able to use even the curses of his enemies to glorify himself, and we see it even in this statement. Caiaphas' pronouncement was an accidental and unintentional prophecy. What Caiaphas meant by his words was this. Jesus must die so that we can save our lives in this world. So that we can appease the wrath of the Romans and preserve our worldly position and power. But God sovereignly overruled his words so that there was a deeper meaning from God through what he proclaimed and this is what God meant by Caiaphas's words as John makes it clear he was saying Jesus must die as a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sins of God's people a sacrificial lamb one who would die under the wrath of God in our place so that we might live for eternity. He died for the true Israel, the true nation among the Jews. And John goes on to point out the children of God who are scattered abroad. In other words, the elect from all the nations, the Gentiles, that Christ was going to die to bring the Jewish believers and the Gentiles believers together into one church. You see, that's the irony. John seems to enjoy the irony of this prophecy. That the sacrifice of Jesus provided eternal salvation for those who believed in him while it brought temporal and eternal judgment upon these unbelieving Jewish leaders. You see, that's the reality of the hardening process of the human heart. 
revelations of God's glory, whether they come through creation or whether they come through the word of God or whether they come through a revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ himself, who is the very image of God. These revelations of God's glory will either soften a human heart or they will harden them, but they will not leave the human heart unchanged. These unbelieving Jewish leaders in the Jewish Sanhedrin are a picture of what all of us would be except for the grace of God. The grace of God invaded our hearts, invaded our minds, opened our ears, opened our eyes that we might see what is obviously true in creation, in the word of God, and in the person of Jesus Christ. Took away our blinded eyes and our entangled souls and our hardened hearts. Thanks be to God. And then Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, But thanks be to God who through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death and to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Understand that. That as you believe in Jesus Christ as you trust in him, as you live for him, as your Lord and Savior, that you are, as you go out into the world, spreading the fragrance of Jesus Christ. But understand that based on this division that John is describing here, that to some, what is the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ is going to be the stench of death to them. And it will repulse them, and they'll want to have nothing to do with it, and they will respond ultimately if God doesn't intervene with hostility. But to those who are being saved, to those who are being given ears to hear, to those who are having their eyes open, to those who are having their stone-cold dead hearts taken away and having them replaced with living spiritual hearts that can know and love God, to those people, your presence, your life, your words will be the aroma of life, eternal life. Life in the presence and blessing of God. Do you notice that this passage ends with the first official outbreak of state-mandated persecution? Look at verse 57 again. It says, The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. That is official language. It's an APB put out on Jesus Christ. And that if anyone knows him and knows where he is they must turn him in or else also become criminal as an accessory and so you have the first state mandated persecution of those who are followers of Christ I'm hoping for reformation and revival in the United States of America I believe that God could do that and I'm praying for it but understand that we are on a trajectory towards greater hostility towards Christ and his church and the gospel message. That means that much more so than when we were kids, our kids and our grandchildren are going to face much more painful persecution. So now's the time to be asking, are you privatizing your faith? Will your faith stand up to the test? When the chips come down, are you going to be willing to lose your life in this world in order to find it in Christ's eternal kingdom. 
Paul said to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Let's pray. Father, as one of the scriptures we read earlier says, who is sufficient for such things? Father, we don't want to be the stench of death to family members and friends and neighbors and co-workers. But Lord, we want to be the aroma of Christ. And we realize that rejection and persecution and hostility comes with the territory. Father, make our hope in eternal things greater, our faith in Christ stronger. Give us greater boldness to stand apart from the darkness and to point to the light. We pray in Christ's name, amen.